We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. I think most founders have not actually approached an understanding of their pricing from a values-based perspective in terms of what is the value to the customer. Almost always approach it from a cost perspective. What does it cost me to deliver it? Pricing it on the same cost basis as the existing thing in the market. But buyers might be willing to pay 4x that. They might be willing to pay 8x that if you really go and understand what the value is to them. Peter, thanks for joining us on One to a Thousand today. Thanks for having me. Hey, Peter. Uh, so, one of the areas I'd love to start the conversation is around product market fit. Um, in particular, I'm interested in sort of covering the fact that you've now, I guess, run your second company. T- t- technically, the third, although the first was just a blip. So, okay, the third company. Um, and I think there are various ways to to do things, but I remember talking to you about how with segment. Uh, you try. You were trying things that weren't really working, and then you launched something, and it immediately worked. And uh, we had a similar experience at Lattice, where we had built a bunch of products, and then when we got to performance reviews, that was the one that that clicked really hard. And so, I guess I'd be curious to hear your reaction or your thoughts around how quickly should you expect something to work? Like, is it like you should have this high confidence and you should? just build to that vision? Or is it the kind of thing where like, generally speaking, you believe that like, if something's going to work, it's going to work pretty fast? Uh, I think it's worth trying some different variations of an idea. But I think basically, if it's going to work, it's going to work fast. Maybe to put a little bit more of an opinion in it, I think the Airbnb story is probably the most destructive story in Silicon Valley, uh, which is that like, oh, you just hang on for years, and you just keep grinding it out on the same idea. And then like, it takes off and you become like one of the most valuable companies ever. Like, I just don't think that's how the reality works. Um, and there's, for the one example of Airbnb doing that, there are like hundreds of examples of other companies pivoting, 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 pivoting. And then they have this explosive product market fit moment. Um, and I think that's much more how it works. Like, I think you really can fail quite fast. Uh, the most inspiring story to me was uh, the Codecademy founders. Uh, in in our batch of YC. I think they killed like 13 ideas during the batch. And then their 14th idea or whatever was Codecademy and they launched it two days before demo day. They got 300 something thousand signups and they were like, they were the the bell of the ball uh, at, at demo day. And it was super impressive because they didn't, they didn't screw around. They just killed the, killed the bad stuff. Do you, do you worry about killing stuff too, too fast with this mindset or is everyone just so geared towards the opposite that they're unlikely to kill, kill things too fast that if they were given a little bit more room to grow would, would, would end up working? I think it's more the latter. I think people are way more enamored of their own ideas than, <laughs> uh, than like willing to drop them. Um, sometimes though, I think you can have ideas that are maybe like structurally sound in some sense, but maybe like haven't been packaged in the right way. So that's maybe maybe a nuance that you may not be you might not be totally off the mark, but you're definitely off the mark somehow if it's not taking off immediately. Um, maybe an example here is the process that we've been through at Charm and trying to figure out how to sell fossil free iron. Uh, one of the things that we can do 
with bio oil at, at Charm is pump it underground as carbon removal. The other thing we can do is gasify it and use it in the iron making process to make fossil free iron. And, you know, I first kind of like approached technology companies in the iron making industry and was like, hey, we should just partner together and do this thing. And there's like crickets, not interested. It's like, okay, fine. Like, what if we build a system that produces, you know, green syngas and we go and try to in- sell that to the iron maker, like go a step upstream. It's like crickets, not interested. It's like, okay, well, what if we build a whole brownfield facility and like do all this other stuff and like, steel makers are like, uh, like sort of interested and like long conversations takes like a year to flush it out. And they're like, ultimately like, doesn't make sense. Not interested. And then we went all the way to the steel makers and we said, okay, what if we just provided you with fossil free iron? And they're like, great. How much can I buy tomorrow? And so it wasn't necessarily that fossil free iron wasn't a thing that they wanted, but it was like the package, the packaging around that was like, do they want the technology? Do they want the gas that enables it? Or do they actually just want the thing? And there, it turns out that the best way to integrate it into that ecosystem is the thing, but it's just a different package around the same fundamental technology. Okay. Related to that, you've talked about how like sales and product market fit are like extremely related. It's not like there's product market fit and then go do your sales. How do you think about that? And like, what's the founder role in the early days? And like, just talk through that connection for, for early stage people. With the caveat that I don't know, diddly squat about consumer. <laughs> uh, and I have no idea how people find product market fit in consumer land. Yeah. Uh, in, in the B2B world, I think product market fit basically is running a sales process. And uh, I think I learned more about actually how to do a, a reasonable, like structured search for product market fit from our, from our sales team at segment than from anyone else in watching how rigorously they tested whether people were actually interested in buying the thing, right? Like the rigor of like a good qualification process, like MedPick, for example, where you're like, is there a champion? Are they going to introduce me to the decision maker? Do they have a budget? Like all these things, how, how much pain is there really? Uh, and quantify, can you quantify that pain? Like all those things are like 10 X more rigorous than any product manager has probably ever really gone and done about how much pain they're actually solving. Um, and I think if you apply that to the product market fit process and you're really honest about how much pain and how much willingness to pay there is there, you're effectively doing all the work of a PM. Um, I mean, you're inventing it as you go as a PM, I guess, instead of sort of running a rote process in, in a sales team. But it's all the same questions and trying to extract all the same information. There's also a good lesson there at the beginning where founders probably don't need to spend nearly as much time building software as they think. They should just be selling plans earlier to, to prove things out. I think that's true. I think there's also something that happens the second time around, which is you probably have a little more street cred, maybe have a bigger network, more people who are willing to do intros, people who are willing to hear you out a little longer. And so I, I think for, for an engineer who's young and you know just starting a company for the first time and doesn't have that, that credibility, uh, they may need to show something to get their foot in the door. So there's a little bit of a trade-off there. Pressing. You've mentioned earlier in your in your sales journey that your your sales advisor told you that you need to raise prices by a hundred x. Maybe it was a thousand x. I I can't remember which one. And at first you were like, I don't want to do that. And then the, the advisor said, Well, I'm leaving. So her, I'm, I'm not going to advise you. So forced you to do it. And uh, he negotiated the 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 client negotiated you down eighty five percent, but you were still up one hundred fifty percent. Is that something 150 that fifty x? Hundred fifty x. Is that something that you think? Uh, is very common, and and you advise founders that you work with to 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 charge you know hundred x more than they they think they should. I think most 
founders have not actually approached an understanding of their pricing from a values-based perspective in terms of what is the value to the customer. Almost always approach it from a cost perspective. What does it cost me to deliver it? And I mean, this is honestly even true in climate tech. You have like a hardware company that's producing a, a new replacement product of, in a cleaner way for something. And like they're processing it, pricing it on the same cost basis as the existing thing in the market. But buyers might be willing to pay 4X that. They might be willing to pay 8X that if you really go and understand what the value is to them and how much more they can sell it to the consumer downstream because the consumer cares more about the climate impact. And so I, I don't know if that, in, in our case, it happened to be a thousand X. And I think that might be a good rule of thumb for like an, a novice founder who's like learning it to sell into B2B software for the first time. But I think the more general principle is like, just like a good sales rep goes and discovers what the value is to the customer, a founder or a product manager needs to go and discover what the value is to the customer and price it based on that. So that the customer is getting an amazing ROI, but you're also not basing it on your costs, which the customer doesn't care about. And Jack, if it's, we haven't talked about this on, on this show yet, um, but for Lattice, was um, how, how did you think about nailing sort of the initial customer value? Was it was it automatic that you, you found it or it took some iterations as well? Or? We, so when we launched, I guess this has always been true, but when we originally launched, we were in uh, a moment in time that was extremely competitive and undifferentiated. So we had like, five or six like very comparable offerings in the market that were all kind of getting going within the same like two-year period and so there was some banding that that created where we tested like trying to go massively above what that cluster pricing was but we had no pricing power in the market we couldn't like credibly claim to be this like really different thing and so we basically tested our way, we started low, as I think a lot of founders do, and then we sort of tested our way up to the top end of the band. And going past that, we quickly realized was just like too arduous because they were just like, well, I got these three other quotes that are all here and like, how can you tell me that you're thing? So we were in a situation where the, um, the sort of replacements were too similar at the beginning and that kind of banded us. So I think that that was that 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 actually led us to uh, less exciting but more sort of defined pricing. I think that was our reality. But I completely agree with Peter's mindset that you should try to press up to value. But the thing that can be really hard is if you're in a highly competitive, not obvious what the differentiation is market or moment, because obviously that changes over time as you build more products and all the rest of it. You can have constraints that are sort of like supply side related. I think. Now that you're doing a company sort of, I guess, a third time, but after like a real success and you've, you know, you're just at a different point in your career, I'm curious if you have any reflections that are different, you know, now like imagining for a second time founder, does the advice stay exactly the same? And uh, Eric made a point uh, recently that I thought was really good. Eric, can you say the line exactly just so that I don't, that I don't butcher it? Yeah. First time founders take market risk. Second time founders take execution risk. Yeah. And so you see second time founders in a lot of these cases, like, hey, I've got high conviction that people want this thing. It's hard to build. And so I'm going to go out and build it. But I know that, you know, I can suffer through a longer period without like ripping growth because I'm just sure that that thing exists. Do you, do you think any differently a second, you know, a third time around, I guess here? Uh, I think that might be accurate. <laughs> I never thought about it that way, but I think that might be accurate. Um my my mental model of like you know I'm working in climate tech now. My mental model of what's happening in 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 
climate as an, or as an industry or a sector or, or movement or whatever you want to call it is like between now and 2050, we have to go build, rebuild all of the industrial infrastructure that got built over the last 200 years. And like that just has, I mean, it just has to happen. So like all the iron making, all the cement, all the buildings with all the HVAC, like all that stuff, power plants, like all of it has to get rebuilt transmission, all the cars and jets and all that stuff. So it's like an insane amount of infrastructure that has to get rebuilt. And in that sense, there's like not a lot of market risk, uh, I guess. But um, I was talking with some friends who are also running climate tech companies and they're like, yeah, the reason we do these companies is because they're like just shy of impossible. Um, so I guess that's the execution risk side. Um, yeah, it's hard to figure out how to build the hardware fast enough. It's hard to figure out how to make the hardware work in an economically competitive way. Like those are probably all the elements of execution risk that I guess you're getting at. Say more about the the how you navigated the idea maze to starting Charm because after you know building Segment for so long, there was lots of other things that you could have done. You could have stayed in your sweet spot, but after building a software company, you decided to do something different. So talk about how how you navigated that process. If there were other uh, things that you also deeply considered and how you came to create it. I never really was a software person. I studied aerospace engineering and then went into software because my roommates uh, who I loved to death at MIT were in software. And so like that was the thing that we could do together. Um, and we pivoted through a few software ideas until we found Segment. Um, so for me, I always was a little annoyed, I think, and deeply unsatisfied in a way that what we were building at Segment didn't have any kind of like physical incarnation. Um, you know, we were like moving bits around in the ether, but there was no, it was hard to like see or like, like when you have parents come for a tour, you're like, what do I, what do I show you? Like we have an office. I, there's like, what it, you know, what is there to show off? And at least for me, that like physicality um, of, of being out in the real world and seeing real people like working hard on things was, was uh, always really meaningful. So I was always kind of like missing that angle. In 2015, I started trying to figure out how we should offset our emissions just from like a good citizen perspective uh, at Segment and discovered basically that all the existing carbon offset things sucked like really badly. Um, and we're probably having good ecosystem impacts, ecological impacts, which is wonderful and like, great, let's go do that for its ecological benefit. Like, you know, if you're planting massive amounts of farmland or using massive amounts of farmland in your supply chain, you should probably be protecting the rainforest that you're like indirectly causing to be cut down. That's an ecological benefit that you should probably be forced to pay for from an externality perspective. But the carbon benefit is like not clear because the forest that you're protecting could burn down and chop down the other one, et cetera. So that kind of, I got started down this rabbit hole in 2015 uh, and kind of figured in the 2016 election, like, oh, you know, Hillary will get elected and, and fix this, which is like, we know how that ended and was also naive on like seven different levels. <laughs> Then the election went to Trump. I was like, well, okay, the only way this is going to work is if someone figures out how to do it profitably. So let's go figure out a new industrial process that happens to sequester carbon as it goes. Uh, and then we'll be able to just automatically pay for sequestering carbon. So 2018 started Charm with some friends and, and so on. So I just fell down that rabbit hole and kind of fell in love with the technical parts of the problem, which honestly is a little surprising. I It's a lot of our like organic chemistry and and physics and mechanical engineering and so on. The organic chemistry part is very surprising to me. I hated organic chemistry, uh, but I've come to enjoy it. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. It, it feels like the process for, for segment was a bit more bottoms up in terms of 
hey, let's let's tr- try some stuff. You you had two ideas that you that you were confident in that you launched that didn't have much traction. Then there's a third idea that you didn't believe in, but your your co-founder believed in, and that was the one that that worked, and it made you a bit more humble about the you know about the process in terms of hey, the market's going to determine you know what it wants, and it's best to try stuff. You mentioned Code Academy guys, and for Charm. And perhaps it's because you're second, you know, third time entrepreneur, more experienced, and also just, you just had more of a top down insight of, hey, this is a big problem. It it, it needs to be fixed. It needs to be fixed profitably. And I'm just going to go figure out how to go do that. Yeah, that's right. I think definitely more identification of like a big area that needed tackling, and then kind of winnowing down within that. That said, the same story actually repeated, which is my co-founder Sean was the one who really like figured out uh, what became Charm's product market fit moment. Um, we had been trying to just gasify, transport biomass to a big industrial facility and then gasify it and use that gas in an industrial process and leave behind char as the carbon removal component. And the economics of this turn out to not really work because when you transport biomass, it's very fluffy. And so you just get fucked on the transport costs. And that's not obvious until you like get pretty far into the weeds on this. Um, And anyways, we hit that point and I was like, we're going to have to find some other way to do it. And he's like, well, what if we split the machine into two? So we sort of do half-ass gasification and make this bio oil stuff that's dense and liquid and we get easily pumpable. And then we move that. So that was his first insight, um, which was like, oh shit, this could work at scale now, but we needed some kind of introductory market to like figure out how to get started here. And a few months later, uh, he was trying to figure out how to dispose of some bio oil that we'd made. And, uh, he was looking at all these options and I was like kind of annoyed because I was like, dude, we have like a liter or two of bio oil. Like it's not a big deal. You know, we should figure out the right way to, but not, maybe not spend a week on it. Uh, and then he was like, well, one of the ways to dispose of it is an injection well. And I think if we put the bio oil down the injection well, we have a permanent carbon removal pathway. It's like, oh shit. You know, both, both companies actually, it's been my co-founder who had, uh, or one of my co-founders who's had the the key insight that opened up product market fit. And shortly after that at Charm, it was like Stripe signed a contract and then Shopify signed a contract and Microsoft signed a contract and they started delivering and things took off from there. That's awesome. I'm curious now that you're like in this you know phase of Charm, are there any things that you feel like you laid the groundwork on at segment in a way that you're like, I'm doing it differently this time around? One that's less interesting, one that is more interesting. A boring one is I just like, I got a lot better at interviewing. <laughs> like I got a lot better at hiring. Uh, and Not through insights, many... just, through ex- just through experience and practice. Yeah, so just many fewer mistakes there. Um, that's kind of a boring one. More interesting one is just the difference between software and hardware uh, R&D. Like the engineering process for software and hardware is like obviously different. Software, you're like, let's ship 100 times a day. Great. Hardware, like... Good, good luck. Um, you know, you have like a supply chain and you need parts delivered and so on. But that has odd repercussions, um, which is you obviously still want it to be as iterative as possible, but sometimes it just can't be. Like the laws of physics are against you and it just can't be. And you might be restricted to like, we can only do this once every quarter. And if that is the case, then there are hacks to make more progress. So for example, let's say you can only build a pyrolyzer once a quarter. Uh, it's true that you can only build sort of one build of a pyrolyzer, but what could you build several builds in parallel? Could you say, here's three potential ways we could architect this. Let's build three variations of it and then test all three. And so at the end of that quarter, you weren't able to do a month and then iterate and then a month and then iterate and then a month and then iterate, which would be ideal. 
But at least at the end of three months, you were actually able to still get three insights instead of one. And so that element of parallelism uh, is actually quite powerful and enables a lot of, of speed up on, in a hardware development process, but it's something you'd like never really do in the software world. Um, but then it has second, it has second order ramifications too, which I'm now learning about. Like, well, if you parallelize and you shut down a project, how does that affect the team? It kind of sucks. It sucks if your project gets shut down a few times. Um, even if it was super impactful and valuable to the company. So there's all these second, third order ramifications of it takes a while to get parts. Uh, that I'm I'm learning and are very different than software. Just before we skip over the boring one on the recruiting, which I agree is boring, but there's like, it's so important and it's an everybody thing. Do you have any, like, are there any tactical things that you've got that you could share that you think have like really grown for you or like things that you've done? Is it about going really deep on reference check? Do you spend more time with people? Do you listen to other people more? Do you listen to other people less? Like what's changed for you over the you know last five or even more years? Uh, one thing that isn't useful, but is a big shift is the size of network and reach uh, makes it so that when I'm hiring for like an exec role or whatever, there's just a lot more applicants, like a lot more applicants. And that makes it a lot easier when you open a role and there's 200 people applying, that's just a totally different place than when you've got seven and then you have to go hire an exec recruiter. And like, that's its own super painful process. Um, so that's one. A second is I've definitely changed my questions over time. Um, one particularly uh, short question that I find to be very revealing uh, is, and that most people don't ask for some reason is just who is your manager, who are your peers and who are your direct reports? And you do that for like the last three jobs and you actually have like a pretty clear understanding of just like what their actual responsibilities were. The peers is the, actually the most important one uh, in there because you understand sort of how it was maybe what wasn't under their, under their remit. And then the other question that I think is quite impactful, but maybe requires more judgment accrued over time to, to grade is just at most recent significant piece of experience, what was the most impactful project you led? And it's pretty quick to determine, I think, like, was that impressive or not? What is your, your favorite reference question to ask when you're when doing references? Or, or what is what is the, the unique thing you're particularly looking to, to gather when doing them? I'm actually not sure how much the reference call itself matters as much as the response you get when you reach out to try to get the reference. Because if the person is actually good, the person will start texting you back and emailing you immediately, like, holy shit, like, this is a great opportunity. Like, you should definitely hire like. The, the the positive references come flow come like very flowably, uh, whereas the negative ones it's like it's kind of hard to get a hold of people. Maybe they don't reply. Maybe they reply slowly. Like you know, you get some signal out of the actual conversation, but I think you get a lot of signal out of the the energy of the potential reference. I was going to ask about um, the Twilio acquisition. And like you've gone through a cool thing that not a lot of people go through, which is like an acquisition at like very large scale, um, which I think is probably just like a, a complex and sort of unique process. So I guess I have a, there's a few questions that are coming to mind for me, but one that I'd love to start with is just like, did how did you get to a place of being open-minded to knowing that that was like a direction that you wanted to go? Was it something that you realized structurally it could make sense to sell? Was it just that you were going about your business and like this like thing you couldn't refuse came across? Like, how do you get to an acquisition at that like late stage in the company? Uh, like what was the process for you to get there? 
So Jeff had already approached me a number of times. Jeff, CEO of Twilio, um, he had already approached me a number of times, basically saying like, "We think that this your data can help us power the future of communications in like a much more like making those communications with people much better." And the first few times, I was like, "Yeah, maybe," but like, doesn't didn't resonate with me. Um, but there was a structural shift in how our customers talked about things there. Uh, so there was a structural shift in customers basically starting to talk like that, basically saying like the main purpose of this data is to help me send better emails, to help me send better text messages, to help me do these things, which was not how they had historically talked about our product. Historically, our product had been talked about in the context of, well, there's an overwhelming number of integrations that I need to do. And so like getting the data from A to B and a to C and A to D and A to E and so on and so forth is like a huge pain on the developer side. Like that's how we started. And it was a developer problem. But over time, we kind of solved that problem and the next frontier for us became this thing. And so there was a convergence on the product side and a convergence in what in how our customers were talking about with what he was saying his customers were talking about. Um, and that was like, a that's a pretty material shift. And when I started to look around and say like, okay, well, who are the other folks who like have the capability to compete there? It's like Adobe, Salesforce, like folks that start to look really challenging. And so um, I think it became much more interesting uh, taking a long view. It wasn't like we were seeing any of this in our sales pipeline or anything like that. We were accelerating growth and, and it was like, we were definitely on an IPO track. Um, so there's that. And then I think there was also like the the personal pull of like, it never really was like that exciting of a mission for me. I love the people there. Um, you know, it's like a 10 year project of passion based primarily around like people and learning. Um, and that was awesome, but I was never really driven by the mission there. Okay. I have one more m question, but that was so interesting. I have to ask about that. Cause I imagine there's a lot of founders who often get to a point when they feel that way, where they're like, Hey, we just launched a thing that like worked because we thought there was a cool opportunity and then it, it really scaled. And now I'm leading hundreds of people around this thing. So you must have had a lot of years in there where you're like leading people and you've got to make the mission feel important to people because they're like committing their career to it. But if you don't feel that resonance, like what did you ground in? Do you still try to, for yourself and others, make the story itself important? Or is it about just sort of the business opportunity and the team and what you can create together? I think it was primarily about the business opportunity and then the like learning development and people and culture. I don't think that I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone at segment who is like, I'm primarily here because this mission speaks to me of like, there might be some people actually, particularly in like the data team or maybe sales engineering or like certain parts of the team who like really had personally encountered the problem and therefore found that motivating, like for sure. But um, I think for the most part, people are motivated by other things and that's fine. We just built, built a culture that was based around that. Yeah. At Charm, it's the opposite, right? At Charm, it's like, yeah, exactly. we're here to solve climate. Like, totally. That's where the urgency yeah. comes from. That's where the that's where the mission lies. Which must be super refreshing from yeah. your seat to be able to just be like, what we're doing is so important and we all just know that. Mm -hmm. um, maybe one last question on the M&A. Like, I think I heard from like somewhere that your growth even accelerated at some point, like on the other side of M&A. So like, I guess I'm curious to hear like what, what goes into a successful integration? Like, how do you make that work? Like, what's important on the other side of, of the transaction to make it successful? Uh, I think the reason that it accelerated post-acquisition is actually almost entirely due to two executives on the segment team. 
specifically Joe Morrissey, who was our chief revenue officer, and Katrina Wong, Katrina Wong our um, VP of marketing, and Steve DeVue, who led customer success and professional services. I think the acceleration that happened post-acquisition was uh, driven by those three and their teams um, and was quite successful and was the realization of work that they had been doing for the year prior as well. And would have happened regardless of the acquisition. I, I think so. Yeah. Um, and I think you could already see this. You could already see it basically happening um, at the time that the acquisition happened. Um, That's cool. There were also very strategic product things that got shipped, um, you know, like things related to the EU privacy uh, data laws that took effect and so on. So that, that would be Tito Carrier Resort where like they shipped, split things up and managed to ship things in such a way that we stayed out in front of the competition in a pretty material way on the product side. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. It sounds like go-to-market got reinvented at a relatively mature stage of the business and something really exciting happened there. Is there any like one or two nuggets that you could like glean from what happened there that were, that were most important then? Yeah, I mean, we, we Joe instituted a like much more rigorous sales motion, much more rigorous qualification, much more accountability and rigor around outbound um, as a sales motion, a lot more alignment of the message that we were delivering and the value proposition and differentiators across marketing and sales. It's like a little hard to overstate like what rigor feels like. Um, um, I guess it's like both intensity and rigor. Isn't it intensity example? Uh, you know, he shared the story of like, there's some, some cultures that are sort of more at the soft end where it's like, Oh, the person isn't doing so well. It's like, okay, let's figure out what's going wrong so that we can like help coach them for like the next quarter or two and let's see what happens. And then there's like other cultures uh, where, you know, the VP sales might snap their fingers and the AE gets escorted, escorted out of the QBR and they never, they're not, they're not back in the company. That's it. They're done. And so like, there's a really wide spectrum there, but that's like an intensity kind of metric you could be on. And we moved quite a bit on that scale um, in a good way towards much more rigorous and or much more intense. And then on the rigor side, it was like, yeah, we like, is it qualified or not? Can be like loosely defined or it can be like intensely measured every week in a sales forecast call, like going through every single metric with a very high bar for what is, what is on those uh, qualification, qualification criteria in this case, med pick. Um, and we shifted a lot more in that direction. Similarly, like on alignment of message, you could be like, oh, you know, we're a customer data platform. Is that the message? Or is the message like five pages of documentation that outline every value proposition, three sub bullets to that value proposition. Everyone uses the exact same words. When this competition comes up, you use these three differentiators, like that level of like, this is the message. Uh, and we shifted from, yeah, everyone kind of says the same thing to like, everyone says the same thing, even like three levels deep in the conversation. And that has pretty, prof those three things together, I think have a pretty profound impact, um, especially when the sales team and the account executives and so on are hired, committed to that level of rigor that like, they're going to be measured every day. Are they making the six phone calls and are they sending the 20 emails? Um, and if they're not like, there's going to be a problem. Um, so shift all four of those things. And it's like a totally different operation. Peter, one thing that's interesting about your incubation of, of Charm Industrial is, is just that, that it was, it was incubated while you were running Segment. And we've seen other entrepreneurs um, do that as well, like Brian Armstrong, I believe, incubated a longevity company. Um, I'm curious if you could talk more about what that process was like 
And is, is that something that more founders, you know, should be thinking about or, or how should they be thinking about it? It's, uh, it's in some ways it's not fair that VCs get to diversify or kind of pursue these big, big problem spaces, but are, you know, the best CEOs of our generation have to, you know, just work on one thing or, or there's some, you know, optics around, they just have to work on, work on one thing. Here's how you think about that. Uh, well, I think being skin in the game committed to, to an idea has a lot of important, like, reasons for its existence. Um, but for me specifically at segment, I was like seven years in, um, and wasn't super motivated by the mission. And like the, you know, board and I were pretty clear about that. Frankly, not a lot of thought went into this, but I got to a place with the charm idea. I basically spent Saturdays on 2017, like doing different sort of techno-economic analysis of like, well, would this idea work? What about this one? What about this one? Like, nope, nope, nope. And then I got to one where I was like, hmm, that one looks like it'll work. And then I was like, well, should I just throw it away? Like, that feels wrong. Um, what do we do now? And uh, so I spent a couple months trying to find someone to run with it, to sort of like be the founder and, and, and go run with it. Couldn't convince anyone to, to run with it. And so I went back to my board and I was like, I mean, I kind of, I kind of just have to like see it through and like, I'll spend half a day a week on it. And is that okay with you? And they were all like, yeah, it's fine. Like if this is what's going to like keep you engaged and motivated and like happy and chugging, then like, then it is what it is. So that, that was the, that was the experience for me. So did you get no break between segment and charm? Really? <laughs> I did not. My last, I mean, they overlapped, so I guess like there was no, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. not only they overlapped and there was no break, but I also, uh, my last day at Twilio was on a Friday and my first day at Charm full-time was on Monday. So I took a weekend. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> Did you have any, because uh, I would just imagine, I mean, segment was a pretty long journey, right? Like it was a decade or something like that? Yeah, in the end, it was 11 and, some, 11 and change years. Did you feel a need or were you just so excited about the next thing that you didn't really need like the recovery period? Because I just feel like so often founders after that kind of run are like, I need a couple months or something. Yeah, I uh, I was pretty excited to just jump in. <laughs> um, but remember, I wasn't like I wasn't jumping into a new. It was like a thing that I had been involved with for pretty tightly running it as CEO for four years. And so it was more like my time kind of ramped. You know, I like suddenly had more time, but it wasn't like the things to do were like, you know, immediately obvious. So it probably pretty quickly went to like two days a week. And then I had three basically empty days where I was like trying to figure out how to, uh, how to make myself useful and impactful and so on. And so it, I would say it ramped over the course of like three, three months. Let's close on, um, on the mental game in, in, in general, or just managing your psychology. You mentioned in another podcast, how, um, running a startup has just narrowed your emotional band. Um, you, you seem someone who's, uh, very sober, um, and, and, and calm amidst, uh, what is a very stressful and, uh, you know, roller coaster, um, experience when you're advising other founders on kind of just managing the psychology of, of the ups and downs of, of being an entrepreneur, what have you found particularly, uh, helpful or, or, or insightful there? I think that's a big difference between if you have co-founders or if you don't, um, uh, or if you still have co-founders, if you don't, I think, uh, for all of segment and until recently at charm, I had co-founders who were in the boat with me. And when that's the case, I think you get a lot of emotional support where you should from that, from that co-founder group. Um, you're basically in, you're in the same boat together. Like the outcome is super shared, like 
that's there's a lot I think that comes from that. Uh, my co-founder is a charmer, no longer with the business, and uh, I have found that I have to have other mechanisms to compensate now. Um, for me, that has become like a morning exercise routine, which I'm pretty religious about. Uh, I think currently a 36-day streak, um, but who's counting? It's almost like it's non-negotiable, basically, from like a, a stress management perspective. But like, it wouldn't be fun if it wasn't stressful. Well, Peter, we really uh, appreciate you coming on and sharing your earned secrets with us and, and the wisdom that you've, uh, you've accumulated. Thanks for, for coming on. Thanks for having me.